So welcome to the Anime Podcast. Uh, this week we have our second episode of our trilogy of episodes about the Spanish Revolution. This week we're going to be talking about basically the key year of the revolution, which probably is 1937. A lot of events occurred there, whether it be Guernica in uh, the Basque Country, whether it be May Days, whether it be the kind of fighting to hold on to Madrid, etc., uh, etc. Et Who do we have this week with us? Uh, we have James. Hello, James. Uh, hello, folks. Uh, I'm fresh from a stream last night where I um, my theory to make Have I Got News for You uh, to be better was to turn it into uh, IRA Death Squad. And that is now my official opinion on how I got news for you. Way to stay on topic. Um, now we also have Will. How you doing, Will? Hello, I am not um, fresh, and I'm, I've not just come off a stream. I mean, I'm on the Mersey, so that's kind of a that's a river, I suppose. Um, but I'm fully on board with this turning Have I Got News For You into <laughs> just an IRA death squad um, thing. Actually, like I think that's what we should turn this into. Um, we should just all wear balaclavas. It would have no effect, given that this is an audio-based podcast. But um, if we were all wearing balaclavas, that'd be pretty cool. I, I was actually thinking about this um, the other day. I was thinking about how a lot of people think that participating in politics is watching Have I Got News For You? or listening to Rage Against the Machine on their way to work as a teacher. Um, that's a bit of a cell phone, I suppose. You but leave yeah. Rage Against the Machine out of this, okay? Yeah, okay, okay, fair, fair. Um, but yeah, I'm very well, Alex. How are you? I'm good. I uh, painted um, my gas locker, if you know what I mean, this morning, um, which you can pretty much make anything a double entendre by saying I painted something today. I yeah, don't know why. why. Um, your gas chamber is your ass, I'm assuming. Yes. Um, and Polly was there too, so that's all good. Anyway, what we're going to do, we're going to begin uh, with a very kind of general kind of question about what people, from what we know, what we've researched, what we've read, and what we watched. That last time, last episode, we finished off basically in the midst of the July Revolution in Spain. Uh, Franco and General Mola, basically the fascist kind of militarists had, uh, with the help of the Germans, landed, taken Sevilla in the south, and basically large chunks, about half of Spain, had fallen to them. The other half, uh, most of the major cities, the industrial belt, pretty much where the food was for the most part, uh, had stayed in Republican hands. The anarchists had, uh, had their revolution in Barcelona, had expanded into Aragon. That's kind of where we were before. Now, it set, settled down into a kind of stalemate and would remain like that for basically about two years before things finally as again spoiler alert went badly for the republic do we think from what we read what we watched that there was any way really even as early as the summer of 1936 into 37 for things to have gone differently do we think that the the, the republic could have won militarily uh we're going to go into obviously into detail about other things about why maybe they wouldn't have had a chance but from what we know from what we read from what we watched was there a way for the republic to have won i mean shoulda woulda coulda it's a difficult question because it played out the way that it did for the reasons that it did it's really difficult to imagine the spanish civil war not having intervention from the uk and germany and soviet uh, russia it was inevitable by the way that it played out. Maybe if it had just stayed an internal 
war, then yeah, it could have turned out differently. But then you could say that about pretty much everything. You could say that the French Revolution would have turned out differently if it hadn't been for you know Austrian intervention, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was always going to end up being the the playing ground for what was to become World War Two. There's an inevitability about that written into the DNA of um, the Spanish Civil War. Uh, yeah, I suppose, like, I obviously agree with that. Um, kind of, I suppose, like, given the way it played out, it, it seems like obvious now in hindsight, but obviously, wouldn't have to the people at the time um, that this was just going to act as a proxy war um, for like different ideologies and power struggles to like play themselves out. There's like this kind of horrible tragedy about it all. You kind of watching like these documentaries that you sent over to us. And it just seems like there was one part where someone in the documentary says something like, this was a revolution for writers and poets. And it's just like a really beautiful sentiment that they've got. And they're all like um, mutually supporting each other and they're all kind of getting along and they're all taking action to take control of their lives. Um, and they all like speak highly of the kind of times when they're fighting. You had like these anarcho-feminists fighting and, you know, like these kind of great like subgroups all seem to like exist fairly peacefully considering it was a wartime. Um, and then obviously like foreign powers get involved and like deck it all up for absolutely everyone. But yeah, it does, it does seem to be like this horrible inevitability. I suppose like the question that you're going to want to ask eventually is something like, what can we learn from it? And I suppose the thing we all learn from it is like, as I don't know, like it seems really bleak. What do we learn from it? But um, but yeah, we'll talk about that later, I suppose. I would have my own opinion about it. I think the decision of the Popular Front government in France, led by Leopold, I think it's Leopold Bloom, or Bloom anyway, and the British kind of sealed the fate of the Republic. Uh, pretty early on, they decided to not intervene, and that included um, not giving them any weapons, not providing them any type of material or financial support, blockading some of the ports. I think they pretty much doomed the Republic by doing that because the nationalists had no such issues finding weaponry. At least 35,000 Italian fucking fascists were there at a given time, and I think about 80,000 served there overall. Germans sent tens of thousands as well. The Portuguese sent tens of thousands. You know, they were outnumbered. Like In the beginning, like as James said, if it had just been, an, an, you know, even if it had been a, an equal balanced thing, I think you would have had um I think you would have had an easier time of it. But unfortunately that didn't happen. The UK and France basically did what it was, what it was probably likely to do. They they saw the revolution as a bigger threat than Franco. Franco wasn't on paper necessarily a fascist at this time. Uh, he was a extreme nationalist. And so they thought he'd be better to have him there than otherwise. And once the Soviet Union got involved, that just kind of doubled down for them. So I think it could have been different. Uh, I don't think it was inevitable that things happened the way they did. Uh, nothing is inevitable, but there's certain, certainly given all the, the actors involved and what their biases were, I think maybe there was a degree of inevitability about it, I suppose. The, oh, uh, so not quite dead, whoever that is. I think, oh, it's Will. Will, what do you want to I, I am almost quite dead. Um, so like yeah, just to like kind of clarify, your your I, hypothesis is something like the Soviet intervention toxified the Republican movement so much that that kind of forced everyone else's hand. I mean that sounds plausible to me. Just like 
No, I, I think that, that was a part later on, but the, the Soviets didn't get involved until much later on, I think even into 37. It was much more the the fears, the kind of class fears, the ideological fears of the kind of French and British establishment that made them that blockade. In any anyone's eyes, the official government had been elected and, and, and is kind of betrayed. So my point is that it certainly toxifies it later on, but to begin with, the, the biases are already there. Okay. What about the idea that, and it's something we're going to tease out, what about the idea that the Republic never really came to terms with fighting the war, that the gays, which we're going to talk about, and the kind of anarchist militias, the PUM, um, were, yes, self-organized, certainly would uh, align with our types of ideas of self-organization, democratic control from the ground up, but they were fighting a force which, besides the fact it was allied with some, you know, the, the kind of the heavy hitters in Europe at the time, in the Italians and the Germans, that they themselves were a kind of a unified force with military experience, and the Republic never really, and the anarchists even in in when they tried to take Zaragoza in the northeast, they couldn't take it. They just didn't have the type of experience that uh, they needed, uh, and the military leadership wasn't really there because they had because they had to build everything from the ground up. So I suppose, is there something to be said or learned from that? Like, okay, well, if you're going to fight a war, because it might well fucking happen, happen in Spain anyway, and Spain is not a million miles away, that you need to have some type of ability to adapt quickly to these military circumstances. James? I mean, purely from a military standpoint, anarchism kind of has a problem within it when it comes to a fighting brigade, because for... For fighting effectively on that scale, you do pretty much have to have a chain of command, I believe. And that is why, say, you know, pirate ships, they were, you know, I mean, it's a different at different times for different ships. But a lot of the time it was like it was a democracy apart from during naval battles. And then the captain was the captain and he did what he said. And, you know, that seems like a sensible way to do it because... You know, you've got someone that's looking at everything and is in a position of power. Uh, you know, and we've always said with anarchism is it's not it just means without leaders. It doesn't mean without leadership. So I think I think the Soviets were right in their idea of having to fight a very conventional war against the the fascist forces in Spain, trying to fight a unconventional war without the help of you know, international aid, it wasn't going to work. And so that that split in the left really caused problems right up until the end of the conflict. Did you see leadership there to extend your naval analogy? What was that? Did you see leadership there to like extend your naval analogy? No, I think you're just looking into my... Uh... <laughs> into... Stop, James. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. I mean, like, I suppose, like, that sounds right to me as well. Um if the anarchists on like the left kind of leaning groups are all kind of trying to like build up their society in like a radically different way to the one that's been pre-established before them, um, thinking about how to organize yourself such that you can take on external and internal military forces at the same time as trying to construct a society just seems like far too big a project to manage at once. And I suppose like the fact that they try to either shows like a remarkable optimism or like a painful naivety on their part and like james said like you know given like the way that the military any kind of military endeavor is going to be structured you're going to have to have 
um, some sort of like hierarchy which they might have had, I suppose, like an antagonistic attitude towards at the time. Um, and maybe like that muddied their thought making or like thought, um, sorry, decision making processes and procedures. Yeah, just to take an example out of history, the reason that Wessex won against uh, the Viking invasion eventually was because it was an organized military force that was centered around um, one ideal where the Viking forces were, you know, splintered in all different directions and didn't really, you know, they were had their own internecine uh, conflicts. And that's pretty much what saved that version, you know, Anglo-Saxon England in the end, wherein, you know, the Viking forces, if they had been united, would have easily won eventually. So Spain's very much similar in the sense that you've got a, apart from, you know, they're, they're both Spanish, so they're both internal, but it would have been possible to have, you know, fought a guerrilla warfare that would have lasted a while if it had been organized. But the, the disorganized nature of it was the, the downfall. And I can't think of any examples where, you know, an organized force has been outdone by an unorganized force. I mean, this is something we're going to talk about in the next episode, uh, the kind of Republican, what's called the Republican terror, but the, the kind of roughly 50,000 people, combination of um, clergy, fa actual fascists, landlords, bosses who were killed uh, within Republican Spain. Um, and the, I think something like 20,000 churches that were burned out um by anarchist socialists and others who just you know hated the church for good reason because the church was absolutely on the side of, of franco like absolutely like they're uh, the tenants within franco's kind of dictatorship um so th but things like that certainly played a role in casting the anarchists as these kind of fringe weirdos to other parts of spain and maybe like if you just view it as a kind of an internal thing that not only were the the kind of anarchists fighting a kind of guerrilla war against a traditional army, but they were losing really a lot of support in in what became like more than half the country, and which was a really hyper Catholic country at the time. Anyway, I mean, this is all hypoth hypothetical, and we'll kind of go more into this next time. But uh, what we might talk about now is the brigades, the famous international brigades. About it depends. Some people have different estimates. Somewhere between about thirty and sixty thousand, pretty wide. Um, communists and mostly communists, really, but uh, socialists. Not really many anarchists came to Spain to fight for the republic. Uh, from groups called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade to our own Connolly Column, uh, only about eighty. <laughs> the Connolly Column, maybe about two hundred and fifty Irish overall went to fight for the republic. Rather depressingly, about seven hundred Irish went to fight for Franco. Um, that's a story <laughs> that we can go into. But uh, the brigades gained international fame, mostly due to a guy who I forget his name. I think it's his initials are G and O, but I can't remember exactly what he... He may have written a book about it. can't remember the title. This is all me being uh, kind of subtle because James hates uh, said author. But it was written about at the time. A lot of people came. It was, as Will said, it was a, a war for poets and it drew in a huge amount of, of people. They also play a big role they, in defense of Madrid, etc. Does anyone have any kind of uh, stories or interesting kind of takes on the idea of this international uh, kind of solidarity that was experienced at the time? Because it hasn't happened again since. Uh, well, you go first for this one, and I'll I'll uh, follow up. Uh, I've just got like a stupid comment, which was something like, 
obviously the international brigades, the best thing that came out of it was George Orwell. Um, just like being a total hero the whole time and um, like total friend to the left. Uh, definitely not some sort of like, I, I really hate George Orwell. Sorry to like all the George Orwell loving listeners. But yeah, I know that he went to fight in the international brigades. Um, so yeah, that was going to be my stupid initial comment. I suppose that's my only take is I hate George Orwell. He is a deeply nauseating individual. Um, but it is fair to say that it was the Spanish Civil War get the seeds to what led to his um, anti-Soviet standpoint, which is, you know, it's a fairly all right point, but he did it in such a an English middle-class way as it's just inherently annoying. But yeah, he's he's the author that should not be named on this podcast. So I just realized that's who G.O. G.O. was when Alex was saying earlier on, I was like racking my brain. Like, who the fuck is G.O.? Oh, sorry. Sorry, James. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think it is interesting the the way that um, the communities around the world sort of joined in the Spanish Civil War. I'm not actually sure how many people from Scotland went, but certainly more than Ireland anyway, uh, especially in the Republic side. And, you know, people like Hemingway, who'd already, you know, been to World War One, and so sort of knew how difficult war was, uh, and was happy to to pretty much go back and report on that again. Part of the reason we've never seen it again is just because the um, visas and border controls are so much heavier than they used to be. And um, I think if there was a sort of situation, say like in Venezuela, where they were like, "Oh yeah, you can come and you can fight, and we'll pay you this much," you would get to see that again. But I don't know how likely that would be considering international wars, um, laws, et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, it was very much a sense of this is it. Like if we don't do something about fascism now, then it's really going to be a problem later on. And that's exactly what happened. Um, there's that statue of the woman in Glasgow. I, um, I don't know, like, I know James, you're from Edinburgh, like Leith, if you're, if you're like really one of these like pro-Leith people. Um, but there's that statue in Glasgow, I think it's called like La Passionaria. Um, it's like this woman in this kind of like outstretched hand pose, like that Jim Larkin statue in Dublin almost. But like that, I think that celebrated the women um, and the people generally who went from Glasgow to fight in the international brigades. Um, but I think Scotland like kind of turned up to the Spanish Civil War. I'm always like a wee bit proud of this. Um, I'm surprised that so many Irish went to fight for Franco. This like This really surprised me. Um, I suppose like it kind of makes sense if the Spanish were kind of, or like the loyalist side, the kind of Franco-based side in the Spanish Civil War were so close to the line with the Catholic Church, why the Irish might go over and fight for Franco. Maybe this has kind of got a partial explanation as to why this might happen. Um, no, that's pretty much, that's pretty much why it happened. Oh, really? sure okay. heavily politicized the war over here. And also a group of fascist, Irish fascists called the Blue Shirts, uh, almost all of them went over to fight. So that was about 500 of them, I think, went over. So they were as a block. Now, they were absolutely fucking useless, and they actually shot some of the uh, Spanish <laughs> fascists by mistake and were sent home after, like, a, a couple of months. So they weren't nearly as useful as the actual Irish Republicans, the IRA guys, the left Republicans who went over. People like, um, insert name here, forgot... <laughs> that's for my edit later um but think, uh, but wasn't it the the blue shirts were basically um they killed more fascists than they did kill republicans and so they're oh, basically oh yeah by a long shot yeah, yeah. um so they but, were sent home for killing <laughs> they killed more fascists than like the Connolly column did 
Oh yeah, bingo. Yeah. Um, um, now the, the I have a story which which like my the story I know of the brigades. It's about the Conley column. So they were about eighty of them in particular. They they didn't want to be associated with the British International Brigades because because I think actually some of the International Brigades from Britain had black and tans, ex black and tans in them. So they were really pissed off about that. So they so they attached themselves to the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, uh, which was from America, obviously. Um, and they had one most the most famous person I know from that group was a guy called Max Levitas, who was actually an Irish Jewish guy born in Portobello in Dublin. And his father had been a trade unionist in Dublin. He had been around in the 20s when there was a, a, a series of murders in Dublin. It was actually, a, it's been hypothesized it was actually a serial killer, but uh, it actually turned out to be just an anti-Semitic uh, person who eventually became part of the Blue Shirts. A guy called Owen O'Duffy, believe it or not, uh, was involved in that killing in the 20s. And Max Levitas moved to London. He was involved in the he was involved in the Battle of Cable Street, and then eventually volunteered and fought in the Connolly Column, which I think is really cool and is a very unknown story um, uh, from that time. Uh, and there was there's a million of them, you know. And of course, the Blue Shirts became later on uh, Rangers, uh, which very few people know. What we're going to talk about now is the May Days, the kind of the key event in May. Surprise, surprise, nineteen thirty seven when the quote-unquote Stalinist Communist Party in Spain, which had gained huge amounts of support because of the involvement of Soviet Russia, basically mounted an internal civil war within the civil war against the anarchists, and most, uh, most importantly, the Pum, were, who were the kind of anti-Stalinist uh, Marxists. Now, it happened over a couple of days, but broadly speaking, what happened was the anarchists in Barcelona were targeted, their kind of control of the city was broken, um, and the, the kind of republic, the kind of uh, bourgeois government was reinstalled as the power in the land, and the communists increasingly gained authority. Now, anarchists obviously take a pretty poor view of what they did there, and they certainly take a poor view that, uh, I take the view that what happened afterwards, which was the basically the, the, the poom was destroyed, their leaders arrested and killed, and uh, the anarchist militias shut down. That they didn't. They they take the view that that didn't really affect anything. It basically uh, shortened the war. The war might have been longer in the eyes of most anarchists. Anyway. Do we want to talk about what we think uh, of that action? The fact that the communists basically stuck the knife in. Now they have their own views as to why they do that, and you can talk about that. But does anyone want to comment on the May days of 1937? So, like, yeah, I'm kind of. I suppose I'm interested to find out what the communist justification for this was, because it seems to me that it was like just a complete betrayal of um, the anarchists, like who were doing a fairly good job, from what I gather, from what I've read, um, of like running this area and keeping it, you know, fairly free of fascists, um, and doing a really good job of defending it. Um, for Stalin, just to say these guys aren't playing the game I want them to play, so they must be crushed. And I don't understand like what kind of defense that they could offer um, for the kind of action that they took. Do you happen to know what their argument was for why they decided to do this? Broadly speaking, the argument was that they needed to streamline communication. They needed to streamline and centralize rule in the army. And most importantly, they needed to get middle class Spaniards on their side by showing that they could they could basically install order, law and order. Um, and a bourgeois government would be better in the eyes of Stalin than basically what the anarchists were doing, which was a social and uh, economic revolution. So like the kind of classic law and order narrative like that the left are always doing, like under Keir Starmer, everyone's favorite communist. Like this is like the most ridiculous um, kind of authoritarian narrative. 
Um, and it seems to not have just happened in Spain either. Um, I'm reading this book at the moment. Um, I mentioned it to James earlier on called The Jakarta Method. It's about the CIA's involvement in Latin America and uh, Southeast Asia, I suppose. And it's, it's really, really fascinating how many kind of times the communists or like perceived communists in those countries are undermined normally by Stalin himself if he thinks they're kind of being too placated to America or if they're not being sufficiently dutiful or deferential to Stalin. So the fact that this has happened also in Spain in 1936, 1937, well, 1937, I suppose, um, is, isn't remotely surprising. And it amazes me that Stalin would rather see a revolution crumble um, than see a revolution strive without him. I just find it utterly repellent. Yeah, but not surprising because it was well, fucking not Stalin. surprising. Yeah, Stalin. <laughs> you know. I basically don't really have anything to add uh, to this because it's um, it, you've pretty much covered it there. I don't. It's not a situation that I I know too much about. So I could just sing the Dawson's Creek theme tune instead if you want. Please, please yeah. don't. <laughs> no. Well, go for it, Let's not do that to our listeners. You can leave that to the end. We can sing it at the end of the episode. How about that? Um, how about this, James? What about just the general idea of left unity in the face of fascists and how the left can eat itself alive in maybe a kind of fight between those who feel, you know, this is an opportunity for revolution. Revolution has to come first because in the end, the revolution will, will provide the type of passion and kind of momentum that will win a war versus those that say, oh, that's very good. But you have to fucking fight the war, and if it, and that's that's kind of you know that could be something which is just something very general about you know a pro the problems in the left between the kind of structuralists and the anarchists. So just in general, what do you think about that type of idea, that conflict? I think it's it's one of those like when we um, we look back at it because we know how it ends and where we are at now, it seems like a ridiculous position to hold. But I think at the time you have to remember that it seemed like it was all to play for. Like the the way that capitalism has like crushed us so effectively, it really didn't seem like that was going to happen in the twenties and the thirties. Um, there was a lot more of a you know revolutionary spirit around the world, and so yeah, it was kind of like the future was there for the taking. So. You know, if you wanted to to see a world where you felt free and knowing that, um, you know, being part of a Soviet satellite state was not going to do that for you. And, you know, the full horrors of um, what was happening in Soviet Russia wasn't really known to a lot of people outside of Russia at the time as well. But people still had, you know, an inkling because of the way that um, the communists acted. It kind of made sense to not be unified um, because in 10, 20 years, you might be in the position that you want to be. Now, that's a completely untenable thing. We're going to have to just like bite the bullet and start on the on the left unity ticket because it's we've we're in a completely different scenario where we're more connected than we've ever been, but less likely to do anything. So that would be you know the, my response to that. We can learn from each other, you know. No, I agree. Uh, Will? Um, I think the thing I really like about James's take on this, and like it's not the first time James has expressed this um, position, is that the left tends to eat itself because it has a, I suppose, like a position on moral purism, where like if you don't hold the exact same beliefs they hold or whomever holds, 
um you're like like kind of cast out as another and you're like depersoned i suppose or like cancelled or whatever and um, to use the kind of language of the far right um and james like often says like we're just going to need to bite the bullet and work with people we don't agree with about literally everything and i, th I think that's true um i think in the case of the soviets in um spain in 1937 in the may day on the may days um I think they should have like capitulated to the anarchists before the anarchists capitulated to the Soviet Union. Um, that would be my view on it, maybe. Um, but again, like as James said, it's it's easy to kind of think now. Um, I think that now, when back in the Spanish um, Civil War, everything was to play for, and like everything was everything was up for grabs. It's also something quite sad about it too, in the sense that earlier on in the summer of '36, the anarchists basically had been offered the government of Catalonia. And they said, nope, we're going to stick to our principles. We don't believe in this type of hierarchical government. We're not doing it. And a year later, the same government now in league with the Soviets, you know, kind of effectively crushed their power. Um, and by then, the anarchists were of the view that the four ministers in the government, because by then there was a socialist government in Madrid that were anarchists, that they had betrayed them. They said, well, no, you've gone into government. Uh, you're telling us to drop our arms and not fight these guys. There was a kind of a degree of purism there, which again, I understand. Like it, it's very, very hard to judge from our perspective what it was like, because they were literally living through the revolution that they had hoped for for a significant part of their life. They were getting revenge on the bosses and landlords that had treated them like less than serfs. Now, I get it, you know, I absolutely get why they did what they did. Uh, equally from a Stalinist perspective, their view that this war was going to be lost. Uh, unless there was a, a, a kind of a centralized response. I get that too. It's there's no, it's not an either or thing. I mean, Stalin's st stabbing of people in the back and, and, and destruction of the poom because he believed they were associated with Trotsky is a whole, that's almost a different thing. That's just spiteful and that's very Stalinistic, I suppose. Um, but what we might do is say, what role do we think this played in in the eventual kind of defeat? I mean, from what I've read and what I've watched, you know, they not not only did the kind of the, the government basically shut down the anarchist kind of independent uh, autonomous zones, but they then went up to the front line and kind of removed them. They said either you can join the army and wear uniforms and do what we say, or you can fuck off. And a lot of them fucked off. And the army that had the republic, you know, basically the communist and central government, took over the lines, tried it a few attempted of a few um, campaigns. They all failed. And pretty much that was almost it. Like that was early 1938. Uh, the nationalists began to march towards the, the Mediterranean. Um, do you think that the, the that stab in the back, do you think in the end, maybe that crumbled the sense of, of purpose and passion within the Catalonian and the anarchist population? They said, fuck this. Well, my revolution is over. I'm not going to fight or I'm not going to fight as hard anymore. You know, what do people think of that? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty fair assessment. It's very much a case of the enemy within um, demoralizing the, the 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 scenario. But I think, on the other hand, they were always going to lose the war as it was at that point. Anyway, that was just that was going to happen because the way that Germany and Italy were both involved, and the way that they were aiding and throwing trip, you know, in the case of Italy, throwing trips in. Um, and you know, America or other places weren't organized to do that. And in fact, you know, somewhere like the UK was um, trading with Franco once he took over um, 
the Basque region. So, yeah, it was it was doomed to fail at that point anyway. They kind of already lost, and it was just another like couple of years as they were dragging it out. Will your thoughts? I suppose like exactly the same as James is like it must have seemed like such an insurmountable enemy is to kind of be fighting Franco on one front and then basically Stalin and Soviet Russia on the other. Um, I'm not sure I would have like taken on that fate and I would have become incredibly demoralized if you would have thought I can rely on, if not support, then at least um, people getting the hell out of my way um, from like the Soviet Union. I understand like withholding arms or whatever or like to actively undermine your project, which seems like adjacent to the project. Um, or like, if not if not even adjacent, but like the end goal of the project that the Soviet Union said they were setting out to do, um, which was like actually existing communism. Um, it just seems like really disheartening. It's, it's a bit like being on Twitter nowadays, you know, when you kind of say something about JK Rowling. Um, it's basically the same as the Spanish Civil War. Exact same feeling. Can I interrupt just for a second and say that James had a great character called Jakey Rowling, who was this uh, a, a Jakey, you know? Um, James, can you do your, <laughs> you do your Jakey Rowling impression? Yeah, it was, so it's basically um, the idea is like what happens if the Harry Potter books were all done by a Jakey? It's like, oh, here, man, oh, I've got this idea, right? It's this guy's. Uh, he goes to a special school, you know, because he's always playing with his tadger under the, uh, you know, under the the stairs there. Uh, oh, I've got the book right now. Uh, uh, anyway, so I tell you what, Azkaban that came from. I was I was in Cairo, right, and I had this coke right up my snatch, and they were going Azkaban, Azkaban. I'm like, what you're fucking saying, man? I was like, oh, they just wanted their picture with me, you know. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> um, to finish off the, the podcast, we might say kind of a little kind of maybe a general reflection, but more importantly, a, a kind of, I suppose, something that we need to talk about since uh, a famous artist by the name of Picasso lived through the experience and, uh, and famously kind of immortalized the village of Guernica in the Basque country, which was the first kind of modern aerial bombardment of what was actually a tiny town. It was kind of it's a town that symbolized kind of Basque nationalism uh, and nation, uh, kind of its separateness. And the Condor Legion, German, about I think about maybe 40 or 50 of them, bombed the thing into ruins. Um, and then the fascists marched in and said, we didn't do that. Someone else did that. Um, there's kind of something very kind of modern about how literally after they bombed this town, they said, oh, it was fucking someone. We found some gas canisters nearby. It was, must have been the fucking anarchists, you know? I didn't do it. Exactly, effectively that. But kind of, you're starting to see really what the what's coming out of this. So I'd like to finish off with maybe a conversation, maybe a general reflection on what happened in those years. But more importantly, this is really kind of World War Two. It is already there. The conflict between fascism and really socialism, with the liberal democracies on the side, in this case, doing jack shit, is has already begun. Um, so yeah, maybe people's general thoughts about that, or maybe anything else they want to say. What's that called? Just before, like, we start in earnest, is it like is that called like a false flag attack? James, you'll know. Like, you're all into your psyops. Yeah, a false flag is different, though. That's basically when you say pretend to be um, like. If, well, if we did a false flag, we'd say like we'd pretend to be fascists, and then like you know smash somewhere up or do an attack, and then go. Say like, oh yeah, we're we're part of the you know the fascist movement, 
Um, so it's it's false flag because your 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 flag is not the one that you're you know from ships. You know, so it's all coming back quite nicely. Um, so you're not doing the Jolly Roger. You've got the, you know the the Spanish flag up instead of that. So do you want to keep on, Will, or was that your only point? No, I suppose like that was most of my only point. It was just like <laughs> where they, the kind of German planes flying, pretending to be Spanish, and uh, sort of like anarchist planes, like uh, an anarchist plane. What the fuck would that be? <laughs> um, yeah, like and kind of bombing poor Guernica and like like absolutely obliterating all those people, um, and then going, oh, fascists, we don't even like planes. It must have been the anarchist planes that bombed your town. How plausible was this? Did the people in Guernica think? Did the people in Guernica believe this narrative? Does anyone know? No, they didn't. It was the people, because obviously people survived and they saw the fucking planes. No, but people in other parts of Spain believed it, believe it or not. In the same way that people in parts of America believe the shit that Trump says, or the, the shit that the Democrats say, for that matter. Uh, but, yeah, no, just kind of, maybe in, in general, like, what I would like to see is, like, to talk about, as to finish up, is this, you know, Civil War, Spanish Revolution, is can be fit into a sequence of events going to the First World War, to the Russian Revolution, to the Bolshevik kind of takeover, to what events in, in, in Glasgow in 1919, the kind of Red Clyde side, to you know the crushing of the unions in 1926 by Churchill, to you know all of these things fit into a sequence of events that are happening at this time. And I think maybe anarchists have, and, and the left have a tendency not to really focus on this. This is a series of conflicts that are going on between the left and the right. And I, I, that's the reason why I say that is because I think there are certain very tentative echoes to what is kind of happening now, beginning to happen now. So that's kind of what I want to uh, maybe finish off with to try and bring it up into the modern day, you know? Well, the, the, the thing is with the Spanish Civil War is it's actually basically the first 20th century war uh, because World War One was uh, a 19th century war. It was, you know, a very Napoleonic war the way it was fought effectively. Um, it was different in like some ways, but the mentality and the overall arc of it is, you know, was an old way of doing things. Um, and the Spanish Civil War is when you see what is going to it carries on in war now, and that includes the way that propaganda is used and put into force um, on both sides, but you know, mostly in terms of the way that the liberal press will turn a blind eye um, to fascist atrocities, but pretty much like have a third eye open constantly uh, that's laser accurate when you know the left is something wrong. We've not, you know, it's we're not out of those wars yet. Um, if you think about Iraq, the way that was fought, um, you know, it's slightly different in terms of like scale because you don't have conscripted armies anymore. But the way that they're they're fought, this was the the playbook that it was all written from. This is you know the Nazis were were trying out what would happen if you bomb the shit out of somewhere um, and find it to be pretty effective. Well, boy. Well, boy, indeed. Um, yeah, I suppose like that sounds like a plausible narrative to me. Um, the idea that World War One wasn't a twentieth-century war, I think, really appeals. Um, the amount of books written about World War One that will say things like World War One was the last gasp of empires, kind of that really resonates with me as well. Like you've got like these, 
gentlemen warriors being brutalized by the horrors of like modern warfare because they just don't occupy the psychological mindset to participate in modern warfare. And you've got these um, royal families all having a spat about who's got the biggest military um, or the biggest navy or whatever bullshit it was about. It was like a pre-ideological war, whereas like the Spanish Civil War was like a highly um, ideological war. I don't know if you guys have read um, the Atrocity Exhibition by J.D. Ballard. Is it? Yeah, J.G. Ballard. And like J.G. Ballard's got this like idea throughout the Atrocity Exhibition where all conflicts are now so laden with meaning, it's hard to find anything that doesn't have meaning. And the kind of way that plays out in the book is kind of interesting. Um, but like this seems, this seems to have started, as James said, with the Spanish Civil War. Um, which, like, I think he's right to say it's the first, like, properly modern war where it's, like, a battle of ideologies um, and complete competing economic interests and, like, different models of economics as well, like, kind of playing out in a military fashion. I suppose, like, the thing that I find interesting about it is the art that comes out of this um, period of time, especially in Spain, and especially, obviously, Picasso's Guernica. Um, the agitprop that the left used is, like, really outstandingly beautiful, um, and the art the fascists use is like really pressing of the art the fascists will use in Nazi Germany, of course, and like in Italy as well. Um, I wonder if any of the media at the time reported the anarchists as being basically the same as the fascists, like you Antifa are basically fascists. I wonder if like that narrative has been spoused then too. I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Um, but yes, yeah, I suppose it's something we've never really, we've never really, let go um it did really set the kind of mold for a lot of modern conflicts true um what we might do then is uh, we'll finish up this podcast we have one more episode to go uh the obviously the tragic end of uh the civil war but also maybe the legacy of it what to be learned how spain in the modern day remembers the war we'll talk all about that in our next episode but uh we're gonna say goodbye um from james say goodbye Heart is in my head. Beautiful. Um, that was Dawson's Creek, I believe. Uh, was it? So, like, I was trying to work it out. I was like, what the shit was that? Yeah, Have you ever watched James. Dawson's Creek, James? Is that just yeah. like your guess as to what Daw what a program called Dawson's Creek, um, what their theme tune might be like? No, but there's two. Dawson's Creek has two theme tunes. There's the international one. Which was, I don't want to wait for this moment be over. And then there's that one, which would have been on the one that I sang first, which was like Channel 4. Um, had it for, in like France and things like that, I would have had that version. No way, I had no idea that there were two Dawson's Creek theme tunes. That's really hilarious. Um, I don't want to know how you found out about like this plurality of Dawson's Creek <laughs> um, intros and outros. Um, I'm not going to sing, but I will say, um, I will say goodbye, I suppose. Bye, everyone. Say goodbye. And also, for those of you listening, please um, keep Will in your prayers because uh, he's a shit job and uh, a shit haircut. Um, Better than <laughs> you. How dare you? Like, <laughs> I can't see my haircut. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just a big P for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not you yeah. know, I'm a big P. Anyway, um, and it'll be a goodbye for me. Uh, for those of you listening, hopefully, you if you like the podcast, you subscribe and you share with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, uh, even though we hate both. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week for the denouement. There we go. I used a big word. The denouement. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.